Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey everyone. I'm here to tell y'all about the podcast Patreon. At the beginning of September, I created a Patreon for those of you who are looking for bonus, ad-free, and early access true crime content, and for those of you who wish to show support for what I do here on the podcast each week. Patreon is a great place for creators to share their work without the censorship or restrictions of other platforms. It's also a way for supporters and listeners to help produce the content they consume. If you choose to join the Patreon, you are gaining access to extra true crime content from me. As you know, I typically publish one episode per week. But by joining the Patreon community, you can access up to two ad-free bonus episodes per week and early access to regular episodes. So instead of waiting until Wednesday for a new episode, you'll get access to it on Mondays. You'll also have access to special podcast episodes like Q&A episodes, case updates, and behind-the-scenes content. There are other perks as well, like the option to submit requests for cases I cover on the podcast, access to a patron-only private community where you can talk about cases with myself and other people who listen to the podcast, and other special content that is currently still in the works. So, if this sounds like something you're interested in, I'll leave a link to the Patreon page in the show notes. By supporting my Patreon, you are allowing me to continue the work I do here on this podcast. As always, I very much appreciate every single one of you who shows up every week to listen and support. Thank you. Now, here is a Patreon-exclusive preview. To some, Wayne Williams is a convicted murderer linked to the brutal killings of dozens of young black children in the late 1970s and early 1980s. But to others, Williams is an innocent man, wrongfully accused by a system eager to find a suspect and eager to put the murders behind the city of Atlanta. According to the FBI, an estimated 29 African-American children, teens, and young adults were kidnapped and murdered in the Atlanta area between 1979 and 1981. And investigators believe Wayne Williams was their murderer. I'm Nisa. Welcome to another episode of the Lost Crimes Library podcast. This is the story of the mysterious Atlanta child murders and the subsequent conviction of Wayne Williams. Wayne Bertram Williams was born on May 27, 1958. He was born to Homer and Faye Williams in southwest Atlanta, Georgia. Wayne was raised in the Dixie Hills neighborhood, which was considered a middle-class neighborhood at the time. His family lived in a three-bedroom home in a modest neighborhood. They were the type of folks who 
took pride in their home, and kept it well manicured and looked after. Overall, it seemed like Wayne came from a traditional American home. No disturbing family secrets or devastating family trauma. Wayne was an only child and very close with his parents, even into his adulthood. According to an article in the Washington Post, Wayne lived with his parents up until the day he was arrested. Wayne's parents, Homer and Faye, were considered great people, according to those who were close to the family. Homer Williams was a photographer and a teacher, and he freelanced for the Atlanta Daily World. And Faye was a school teacher as well for many years. In fact, she taught some of the mothers of the victims of the Atlanta child murders. Wayne enjoyed many hobbies in his youth. As a young boy, Homer bought Wayne an electric train set and bicycle. He also bought him a combination rifle and shotgun, which the two of them used on hunting trips. But Wayne supposedly didn't take to hunting very well, and so he eventually gave it up. Wayne also enjoyed working on radios with his father, but unlike other kids his age, Wayne wasn't really into playing children's games. He'd much rather be with his radios. Wayne was also a bright student. He was in the top 10% of his class at Frederick Douglass High School, and prison tests would later determine his IQ to be 118. Williams graduated from Frederick Douglass High School and developed an avid interest in journalism and radio. He assembled his own carrier current radio station in his home and began frequenting radio stations WIGO and WAOK. There, he became friendly with much of the announcing crew. At one point, Wayne even dabbled in becoming a pop music producer and manager. He wanted to create a music group that was modeled after the Jackson 5. Journalist David Hilder has said, quote, He allegedly went around to kids saying, I can make you the next Michael Jackson, and claimed to be a record producer and music producer, end quote. Stuart Flemister was a child when he joined a group Wayne created called Gemini. Stuart has said that Wayne was fun and light and very much like a big brother to him. His jokes were sort of corny, and he would try to be the cool guy, but he just wasn't the cool guy type. While Wayne spent his days at the radio station and trying to launch a music production career, at night, Wayne was often out on the streets, capturing video footage of accidents and fires for local TV news stations. Lou Arcangeli, who worked in the Atlanta Police Department from 1974 to 2002, said police officers knew Wayne was often a quote-unquote part of the landscape at crime scenes. So let's get into the Atlanta child murders and how they connect to Wayne Williams. So in the late 1970s and early 80s, the bodies of missing children were initially found in the abandoned parts of the city. The victims were either strangled, shot, bludgeoned, or stabbed to death. Between July 1971 and May 1981, at least 28 children, adolescents, and adults were killed. In the middle of 1979, 14-year-old Edward Hope, also known as Teddy, and 13-year-old Alfred Evans, sometimes known as Q, both disappeared four days apart from each other. Their bodies were found on July 28, 1979. They were located in a wooded area along Niski Lake Road in southwest Atlanta. Teddy sustained a 22 caliber gunshot wound in his upper back, although I'm not confident in how Alfred died. Although I found some reports saying that Alfred died from asphyxiation, I don't feel confident saying that was for sure his cause of death, as this information did not come directly from law enforcement. Edward and Alfred were believed to be the first victims of what was eventually dubbed the Atlanta Child Killer. 
On September 4th, 1979, there was another victim, 14-year-old Milton Harvey. Milton disappeared while running an errand to the bank for his mother. He rode his bike there, and it was eventually found a week later in a remote area of Atlanta, and his body was not recovered until November. In October, another boy went missing. On October 21st, nine-year-old Yousef Bell went to the store to run an errand for a neighbor. He went to the Reese Grocery on McDaniel Street. A witness told police she saw Yusuf near the intersection of McDaniel and Fulton, getting into a blue car before he disappeared. Yusuf's body was found on November 8th in the abandoned E.P. Johnson Elementary School by a school janitor. His body was found clothed in the brown cutoff shorts he was last seen wearing, with a piece of masking tape stuck to them. It was determined that Yusuf had been hit over the head twice, and the cause of death was strangulation. However, police did not immediately link his disappearance to the previous murders. Up until now, the victims had been underage males. However, as the killings continued into the following year, the case had its first female victim. On March 4, 1980, 12-year-old Angel Lanier disappeared. On the day she went missing, she left her house around 4 p.m. wearing a denim outfit, and she was last seen at a friend's house watching the TV show Sanford and Son. Six days later, Angel's body was found in a wooded vacant lot along Campbellton Road, wearing the same clothes she wore when she went missing. What I'm gonna say next is graphic, so please prepare yourself. A pair of white underwear that did not belong to Angel were stuffed in her mouth, and her hands were bound with an electrical cord. Her cause of death was determined to be strangulation. On March 11th, one week after Angel Lanier's disappearance, 11-year-old Jeffrey Mathis disappeared while on an errand for his mother. He was wearing gray jogging pants, brown shoes, and a white and green shirt. Months later, a girl said she saw him getting into a blue car with a light-skinned man and a dark-skinned man. Jeffrey's body was found in a wooded area 11 months after he disappeared. But unfortunately, by this time, it was not possible to identify the cause of death. On May 18th, 15-year-old Eric Middlebrooks disappeared too. He was last seen answering the phone at home and then leaving in a hurry on his bicycle, taking a hammer with him to repair his bike at some point. Eric's body was found the following day next to his bicycle in the rear garage of an Atlanta bar. The bar was located next door to what was then the Georgia Department of Offender Rehabilitation. His pockets were found turned inside out. His chest and arms had slight stab wounds, and the cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma to the head. What's interesting is that a few weeks before Eric disappeared, he had testified against three juveniles in a robbery case. The following month, another kid disappeared. On June 9th, 12-year-old Christopher Richardson went missing on his way to a local pool. He was last seen walking towards the DeKalb County's Midway Recreation Center in Midway Park. Christopher was seen wearing blue shorts, a light blue shirt, and blue tennis shoes. His body was not found until the following January, clothed in unfamiliar swim trunks. The cause of Christopher Richardson's death was not determined. A few weeks later, another girl disappeared. On June 22nd, seven-year-old Latanya Wilson vanished from her parents' apartment. According to a witness, she appeared to have been abducted by two men, one of whom was seen climbing into the apartment window and then holding Latanya in his arms as he spoke to the other man in the parking lot. On October 18th, Latanya Wilson's body was found in a fenced-in area at the end of Verbena Street in Atlanta. By then, the body had skeletonized, and so no cause of death could be established. The next day, 
June 23rd, 10-year-old Aaron Weish disappeared after having been seen near a local grocery store, getting into a blue Chevrolet with either one or two black men. A female witness told police she saw Aaron being led from Tanner's Corner Grocery by a 6-foot-tall, 180-pound black male, approximately 30 years old with a mustache and a goatee. The witness's description of the car matched a description of a similar car, implicated in the earlier mentioned Jeffrey Mathis disappearance. Later that evening, at 6 p.m., Aaron Weish was seen at a shopping center, and the following day, his body was found under a bridge. The official cause of death was asphyxiation from a broken neck suffered in a fall. And sadly, the disappearances and murders just kept happening, one after the other. In July 1980, two more children, nine-year-old Anthony Carter and 10-year-old Earl Terrell were murdered. And on August 20th, 13-year-old Clifford Jones vanished. A day later, he was found dead from strangulation. His body was recovered behind a dumpster that was behind the former Hollywood Plaza shopping center. Then there was Darren Glass, a 10-year-old boy who was reported missing on September 14, 1980. His body has yet to be recovered. More than 100 agents were working on the investigation. The city of Atlanta imposed curfews, and parents in the city removed their children from school and forbade them from playing outside. Everyone was terrified that their child could be targeted next, and nothing like that has really happened before, and so people were understandably scared. But despite the curfews and precautions, the murders continued. 12-year-old Charles Stevens was reported missing a month later, on October 9th. His body was found the next day on Norman Berry Drive, near the entrance of a trailer park. Charles's body was missing his t-shirt and one of his shoes, but he was still wearing his dark blue pants. Police determined that his cause of death was asphyxiation, and rub marks were identified on his nose and his mouth. Investigators found something else that was interesting on his body, too. They found dog hairs and two Caucasian head hairs, along with two pubic hairs, which were found on his boxers 950 feet away from his body. In the fall of 1980, nine-year-old Aaron Jackson went missing. He disappeared on November 1st, and his body was found the following day. He had been strangled, with his body lying face up on a riverbank. And at the end of the month, 16-year-old Patrick Rogers went missing too. Something that just sent chills down my spine when I was researching this was that Patrick actually knew several of the previous victims. His body was eventually found on December 7th in the Chattahoochee River, and police suspected that his body had been dropped from the bridge above the river. And as the new year came around, the murders just continued. The first known victim in the new year was 14-year-old Luby Geeter, who disappeared on January 3rd. Luby's body was found on February 5th. That same month, Luby Geeter's friend, Terry Pugh, went missing too. Terry was 15 years old and lived in the same apartment as Edward Teddy Smith, who was killed back in 1979 and was one of the first victims. Mysteriously, an anonymous caller told police where to find Terry Pugh's body. In February and March 1981, six more bodies were discovered, and they were believed to be linked to the previous cases. Among the six victims was 21-year-old Eddie Duncan, the first adult victim so far. And there were more adult victims in the following month. In April, 20-year-old Larry Rogers, 28-year-old John Porter and 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne were murdered as well. John Porter and Jimmy Ray Payne were ex-convicts, 
and had just recently been released from Arendelle State Prison after serving time for burglary. On May 12, 1981, FBI agents found the body of 17-year-old William Billy Starr Barrett on a curb in a wooded area near his home. A witness who happened to be a custodian from Southwest High School had run out of gas about a mile from the scene. The witness told police he saw a black man standing over and searching the location where the body was found before driving away in a white over blue Cadillac. As the media coverage of the killings intensified, the FBI predicted that the killer might dump the next victim into a body of water to conceal any evidence. Investigator Chet Detlinger created a map of the victims' locations, and even though there was a difference in the ages of the victims, the victims fell within the same geographic parameters. They were connected to Memorial Drive and 11 major streets in the surrounding area. Memorial Drive is a five and a half mile east-west corridor that cuts through eight neighborhoods. Media reports also suggested that investigators had found possibly telling fibers on some of the bodies, and the victims began showing up in rivers and bodies of water instead of the abandoned areas they once were found in. Investigators decided that the killer may be dumping bodies from bridges, and so they staked out bridges throughout the city, hoping to catch their serial killer. Now, let's get into how 23-year-old Wayne Williams became connected to the Atlanta child murders. I kind of already hinted at it, but there's a lot more to it. On May 22, 1981, in the morning around 3 a.m., Wayne Williams became a suspect in the Atlanta child murders when a police surveillance team heard a big loud splash while staking out the James Jackson Parkway Bridge spanning the Chattahoochee River. This spot is where multiple bodies had been discovered previously. After hearing a big loud splash, police thought that maybe something had been thrown from the bridge into the river below. According to the police, the splash was startling and it sounded like a body hitting the water. An officer saw a white 1970 Chevrolet station wagon turn around and drive back across the bridge. The first vehicle to exit the bridge after the splash around 2.50 a.m. belonged to Wayne Williams and that is how he became linked to the Atlanta child murders. If you'd like to check out the rest of this episode, click the link to the Patreon in the show notes. Again, thanks for always supporting me, and I'll see you in next week's episode. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.